Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Autism Grown Up Podcast. Today I'm going to be sharing my interview with Holly Block Moses, who is a BCBA and licensed psychological associate. The Autism Grown Up Podcast is just one of the many resources that Autism Grown Up offers. We are an online nonprofit organization focused on talking about growing up and navigating adulthood and providing the resources, strategies, and ideas, as well as support to help you along the way. Whether you're an autistic self-advocate at any age, a family member, professional, or someone who is an ally who wants to learn more, this is the place for you. Through this podcast, we share conversations and interviews, as well as strategies from our resource center about people and organizations that are doing work in this exact area. There's not a lot of resources and information when it comes to those teen years and adulthood, as well as even just shifting our focus towards thinking about the lifespan itself. So this is the place where we are hoping to fill in those gaps. I'm your host, Dr. Tara Regan, so you will be hearing my voice around these parts. I am a sibling, I have two brothers on the spectrum, Tyler and Tanner, and I've been in the autism field for well over a decade at this point, from doing direct care support, social work, uh, special education and research in schools and in the community. So I've learned a lot along the way and have had so many conversations with folks just like the ones you're gonna be listening to and I wanted to share these conversations with you as well. So get ready, grab a cup of coffee or tea or your preferred beverage and let's sit down together with today's guest. This episode is gonna feel like a workshop style something a little bit different from our usual setup and I hope you all like it. Let me know. You can send me an email or let me know online. So this is a little bit more about Holly. Holly Blanc Moses is a board certified behavior analyst, licensed psychological associate, and licensed professional counselor with over 20 years of experience in applied behavior analysis and behavior therapy. In today's episode, we're going to be covering how we can redefine what we often say is challenging behavior and how language and discussions can lead to internalizing negative self-beliefs in many autistic individuals and where we can get started today, whether we are a caregiver, a service provider, or if you are an autistic individual listening to this episode too, how you can support conversations with those in your support network. Now let's jump into my conversation with Holly. Hey everyone, welcome to the Autism Grown Up Podcast. Joining us today is Holly Blanc Moses. Hey Holly, how's it going? (laughs) Good, it's great to be here. Good, I'm so excited to have you here uh, for a wonderful discussion, which will probably turn into maybe another episode related to this topic because you know this so well. But first, I would love for you to share a little bit about you and your work in the autism community. Sure. I am a psychologist and a behavior specialist, and I support parents and children and caregivers and therapists to just be as effective as possible to support differently wired kids, mainly children with autism, anxiety, and ADHD, just live their best life. 
That's awesome. I can get behind that and living your best life. <laughs> Let's is, all get behind that. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that's a critical thing that we need to remind ourselves as we think about growing up and navigating adulthood. And one of those topics that comes up again and again from caregivers and professionals that we serve in our community and for all of our listeners really who are serving in the autism community is uh, this notion about like challenging behaviors and what those actually mean and like the implications of that on someone on the spectrum when they probably more than likely know and hear what people are saying and what that can contribute. You know, absolutely. And so behavior, I would say, just to even go farther down that road, I find that parents, caregivers, and educators, it's almost the number one concern I hear from them. Mm -hmm. That, you know, it's the behavior, we want to see less of this and less of that. And, you know, they're choosing not to do their work and, you know, all these different kinds of things. They're refusing to listen. Mm -hmm. But really, there's so much more than that. And I often find that we just, we miss it. We miss the important things that we need to pay attention to because we don't maybe understand it or we're not listening or we're not paying attention to what the child needs. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. And I love just that framework that you just said now. You are so great at providing compassion to everyone involved in the in this experience or the situation and that we're missing it. There's like no judgment here whatsoever. It's just something we are missing in the moment and to catch on that in the future can really make a world of a difference. Well, Tara, I'm I'm so glad that you said no judgment here because I am not a perfect parent. I will be, I, I, I do this for a living. And before we even adopted our differently wired children, I I was doing this for for professionally, and it's a whole different deal when you yeah. are a parent. Um, and you know, it's it's not easy. It's not easy for children. It's not easy for adults. It's not easy for teachers. It's not easy for parents. But if we are able to sort of come together and be more open and understanding, everything can be better. And that's what I think about you. You said the word compassion, one of my favorite words. And I think before we even go down the road of behavior, I like to talk about the three C's. One of them being compassion, by the way. Mm, Um, So first is the C for calm. And I think this is really hard for us because we are a big part of all the behavior stuff. We're part of the interaction. So, you know, unfortunately, I often hear that it's the child. The child has to stop this mm-hmm. or the adult person needs to stop this. You know, it's like, yeah. wait a minute, what, what's going on here? We really need to take a step back in order Absolutely. to be helpful. So number one is to be calm and we all have to be gentle with ourselves. We're all stressed. We're all bringing a lot to the table. We're going through so much and we need to really be able to calm ourselves before we handle a difficult interaction. Because if we are also having a tantrum or a meltdown, (laughs) that is not really going to be an effective place to start Mm -hmm. to be able to help a child or, or anyone else for that matter. So we really need to check in with ourselves first. Am I coming from a place of support right now? 
am I coming from a place where I can be open to understanding what this person needs? Or am I in a place where there's too much, there's too much happening, I have to calm myself before I enter this situation or enter this interaction? So being calm really is something that we, as neurotypical people, have to really think about first Mm -hmm. when we're talking about interacting with someone who's also struggling. Mm -hmm. So when I talk about compassion, I'm a big Ross Green fan. I know I know tons of people are. And they say, you know, children do well if they can. And I think coming from that perspective, instead of a, they're doing this on purpose, they're trying to give me a hard time, um, it really is a different way to approach um, a child and helping them have what they need mm-hmm. if you come from a place of compassion. And when I say compassion, I not only mean that for the child, but also the parent, also yeah. the teacher, recognizing what they need and what they're struggling with, I think is a giant part of all this. Now, mm-hmm. the third part is curiosity. Hmm. There's something, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> I like that one a lot. I, I like it too. And that's best for last. So when we when we're curious with no judgment and i love the no judgment i i love love that so important to this process is how do we start out now when i back back in the day when i started in this profession in was like 96 or something yeah i know so so such a long time ago um i wasn't curious i mean i was curious educationally but i wasn't curious in my openness And so if I was called, say, Holly, you know, this child is really struggling at home, they're having tantrums or meltdowns, some aggression, um, disruption, and call me in, I would say, oh my goodness, this kid is just really angry. Why do they hate my guts? Right? Uh Like it felt very personal. Right. And in fact, it wasn't. I wasn't curious and open to saying, okay, I need to step back and look at the entire picture here. Anytime we think of something personally, we become defensive. That's just a human thing. Right. It's a defense mechanism. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that's sort of how humans are built. Right. But if we're curious and open, we can say, oh, what's going on here? Without judgment, without defensiveness, and say, what do they need? You know, what's happening for them at this moment? It really puts us in a better place to support rather than, you know, tell them they're, yeah, they're doing something wrong again. And they've heard that enough. Right. Right. I love those three C's and I think they interplay with each other quite nicely because it's really hard to be curious if you're not calm or if you're not compassionate in the moment and you're kind of reacting to the moment. Oh, that's so true. They all work together. Yeah. And they take practice right and I and again I've been doing this for over 20 years and I have to practice every day with my kids because Mm -hmm. I'm still just human (laughs) right (laughs) there's something beautiful about really reminding ourselves of that um like I said having compassion for ourselves so Mm -hmm. when we're talking about behavior, we have to look at it again with curiosity and openness and support. And once we have that change in mindset, we can really open the doors to some beautiful things. And one of them I always 
when I'm working, you know, consulting or with my own patients, um, whether I'm doing a talk, I'm always talking about understanding those differences in behavior as a part of physiology and why there is actually a difference in wiring. It's our expectations are always the same. We expect you to, to behave. We expect you to follow the rules. We expect you to be kind all the time. You know, all of these things. But we're not thinking about there are real neurological differences. And part of those differences are the frontal cortex. So what we see is actual differences in functioning. And if we ignore those differences, we are going to miss the opportunity for understanding support and really effective strategies. Mm. So understanding that those differences in the front of the brain, they impact a lot of the things that we do. They impact mm -hmm. a lot of behavior. And so we're talking about differences in self-motivation. We hear that a lot. Right. Differences, yeah, differences in emotional regulation, social differences, problem-solving differences, motor planning, working memory, disorganization, you know, um, rigidity. We see oftentimes differences in flexibility mm -hmm. with people on the spectrum. So we're demanding basically that they have these skills that their brain isn't set up in the same way we expect them to be. And so, of course, they're going to feel like they're always failing. And there's going to be conflict when the expectation is unreasonable. That we're not putting in the supports that they need because we're not understanding the wiring differences. Um, another part of the brain we really need to pay attention to is the amygdala. That's a really big one. It's fun to say, right? Yeah, it's a great amygdala. one. Amy Jigala just... is how I remembered it. <laughs> Exactly. It's a fun one. It's an important one. And we need to talk more about it. So these differences are, are hard um, for people on the spectrum because we're going to see that there's an increased perception of, of def defensiveness, you know, fear, anxiety, anger, and sadness. And, and we can't ignore these differences. Right. Problems, even recognizing facial expressions have to do with this part of the brain. Differences in eye contact. This also is, you know, enhanced memories of emotional events. Things that we think weren't a big deal, but were a really big deal for them. And we need to recognize that. So we have to think about how we're understanding behavior, that there is an actual neurological difference that impacts perceiving and reacting to emotions. Um, and, that, and that makes a lot of sense, right? When we're thinking okay. about those differences and the behaviors that we're saying, just stop doing that. Well, <laughs> it we make sense. We've got to yeah, get yeah. this part. Absolutely. Um, also, sensory differences. And, and I'm glad that we talk a lot about this because it makes a massive difference. You know, you could be hyper or hypo responsive. It could seem that the reaction of, of some people on the spectrum aren't what we expect. It seems extreme, whether it is very big or very small. And, you know, there seems to be the sort of this mismatch between our expectation. Um, and I'll give you an example is uh, I had bought, I was very excited about this um, diffuser. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
my son, who's autistic, my oldest son, um, he had a very big reaction <laughs> to, to almost, I tried every, everything um, for the oils, but he is very sensitive to smell. And instead of saying, oh, you have to deal with that because this is what I like, I have to understand that's not easy for him. Mm -hmm. And if his body is overwhelmed by that sensory experience, how am I going to expect him to feel good in his brain and his body and his environment? Right. Um, so smells are sensitive for him. Their sound can be really sensitive for people. And then, you know, clothing, we're, we're legally expected to wear clothes, right? right. <laughs> we sort of have to do that. Yeah. Um, when we're outside the house. In the community. Yes. Yes. If you're outside the house. Um, but we have to think about what if you had this clothing that was so uncomfortable that you couldn't even attend to anything else, that you were so miserable. So to look past these sensory differences is really doing, you know, these children a disservice. You know, we're, we're not understanding and being curious like we need to be. Right. It's a big impact on their behavior, on their experience in life. And if we don't look at these physiological differences, we're going to miss it every time. We're going to mess up every single time. Because if we don't understand that they require a different approach than a neurotypical person, we're completely setting them up for failure all the time. And that, that is so hard. And I, I can't even imagine what it would be like to be in a world of people and environments that are not set up for you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think you bring such a great point to putting yourself kind of as much as you possibly can into that perspective of thinking about if your world wasn't set up for you, like it isn't for your child who's on the spectrum or your students uh, who are neurodiverse and they are constantly hearing things about them that they're not, they're not motivated enough. They just can't do this. They can't do that. And they can't do the things that they want to do, or they're not enough for this or that, that it can lead, it can have some heavy implications, not just in the short term where we see maybe some huge misunderstandings and arguments and maybe some other consequences, but also long-term implications too. Absolutely. And I'm actually going to talk a little bit about that um, today is that if you, you know, and I'll see, you know, new patients will, you know, possibly come to me even in their teens and they'll say that I feel like I can't do anything right. Mm -hmm. Everything I do is wrong. Nobody likes me. And, and to go through life that way, I, I can't begin to imagine, you know, again, how difficult that would be. Um, so, you know, hopefully today, this is just uh, one more step in the direction of our understanding and our openness and our curiosity and um, more effective ways to support, you know, the people that we love. Um, you know, when we talk about behavior too, not only the, the physiological and neurological differences and what we have to understand that will ultimately change our approach, it's always remembering that behavior continues to occur for a reason, 
right? Mm -hmm. So sometimes I'll, you know, parents will tell me and, and teachers, and I completely understand because they're coming from their own levels of stress, um, that why does this keep happening? You know, why can't they just stop? And the reason why behavior, again, continues to occur is for a reason. And we have to be open and curious to find out what that reason is, because ultimately that will lead us to helpful strategies to support that person further. Absolutely. So, yeah. So what do we need to do really before that is when we're breaking down and being curious and looking at challenging behavior in particular is what are we actually looking at? We have to be very specific because we're going to be looking at all kinds of things that impact behavior. Behavior isn't necessarily simple. Um, so for instance, uh, oftentimes, just an example, um, maybe people come to me and say, this child is rude. <laughs> like, okay, well, what is that? What does rude mean? It's very subjective. Mm -hmm. um, you know, something that someone perceives as rude, you know, maybe I wouldn't. Um, so we just have to be very clear of the target behavior that we're looking at. One that we're going to be very curious at and look at all the different variables that may impact that behavior and why we may see it more often. You know, whether that is um, hitting, that's very specific. You know, what does that look like? Or um, name calling, you know, those types of things. So anytime you want to look at behavior, you want to be curious about it you notice that you know, it's getting in the way of this child's life, then again, how can we support them by really talking about what it looks like specifically? Mm -hmm. One of those things we wanna look at are date, time, location, and people. And that sounds like a lot, but it's actually really important because behavior, once we take our own defensiveness out of it, it really is just a mystery to be solved. You know, it's like we're putting our detective hats on and saying, how can we best support this child? And if you come again from a mindset of curiosity and support and compassion, this is going to be a much different experience for everybody. And so, for instance, we might find that on a particular day, um, or time, the behavior is more likely to occur, or maybe it's less likely to occur. That's equally important. Oftentimes we think, well, when is it happening? Um, well, when is it not happening? We need, we need to figure that out too. Um, anytime a person says, well, it's just anytime, there's no rhyme or reason, that's usually not the case. We just have to be very curious and non-defensive, no judgment, and just look at the information. And where is the location of the challenging behavior likely to occur? Who are the people that they're more likely to occur with? And don't feel bad if you're kind of a primary caretaker and the behavior happens more around you, there might be more opportunity for it simply because you are around more, mm -hmm. you know? So that's always something to think about too. Definitely. We also have to think about, you know, like I said, location is, is it in, is it in PE, for instance? Um, you know, some of my patients will say, I get so uncomfortable, it's loud, I get sweaty, it's horrible, I want to escape this environment, no one will listen to me. I mean, it's really hard. Sometimes it is in, in a socially difficult situation like a cafeteria, and that can be difficult, you know, sensory-wise as well. It could be a particular parent 
um, is using the way they were parented towards their child on the spectrum that's not matching up. You know, it could be lots of things that we have to think about. Um, and again, it's no judgment towards anyone in particular. It's just about being curious. We often need to know how often <laughs> the behavior occurs, the frequency, and how long it lasts because we need to know if it's shortened, say, no, maybe it lasts about five minutes. And then now we find that it's lasting three minutes with the strategy. So this is a way to also let us know that we are helping, which is always a good thing. Another thing we have to think about is these environmental and physiological factors, kind of how we were sort of talking about this before. We have to pay attention, you know, is our child maybe hungry or tired, anxious, depressed? 40% of children on the spectrum have clinical levels of anxiety then they're also four times more likely to be diagnosed with depression. I mean, these are big things that we have to think about, that we have to pay attention to, and that impact behavior. Also, they may be taking medication. We have mm -hmm. to think about that. You know, is their medication coming not quite in their system in that time, or is it coming out of their system? There's so many different things that we have to consider of things that impact them. And also learning differences, and this is so big. And I often hear this um, from teachers that, you know, kids are kind of resistant to learning. And um, again, that refuse word that comes in often is they're refusing. Well, really, 67% or more of children on the autism spectrum also have a learning disability. And I think oftentimes we miss this, and it looks like purposeful, challenging behavior. So avoiding difficult academic tasks because of a real learning difference. And again, for the physiological part, too much, too little stimulation, there could be illness. In this population, they're more likely to have GI problems, headaches, feeding differences, all kinds of different things that we have to consider. And oftentimes, we comes out in challenging behavior. Um, it's unlikely that a child says, my stomach hurts. I'm thinking there's a correlation between this, this food and my problem behavior. <laughs> you know, like, don't think that's going to happen. So it's our job to really help them figure that out. Yeah, that too. I think even just practicing that and modeling that can also give our child or your student that chance to practice that themselves to learn more about how they can figure out what is going on. Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's something that is so easily missed. Yeah. Right. I, definitely. Um, so it, and just to give you an example too, is sometimes I'll work with um, patients who are talking about um, stomach hurting and they're he having headaches at school and they're wanting to come home. And when we, of course, always check it with a physician first, because we don't want to miss any medical problems. Um, but oftentimes it's stress and wanting to escape a really difficult situation. Um, and so again, we need to figure out what those are. And triggers are something we need to think about too. Mm -hmm. And that could be, maybe you present um, a task to a child and they're like, nope, not doing it throw it, whatever. Well, it looks like oppositional behavior, but what if it was too hard? 
or it was too long, or it was unclear, or it was too easy, or it was too boring, right? I mean, there's, there's <laughs> so all many possibilities. These, yes, there's so many possibilities. And you can see how it can easily be missed. So again, the reasons behind the challenging behavior are really the way to open the door to make things better. But if we miss this part, we're not going to make things better. They're still going to continue to be difficult and there's still going to be all of this tension. Um, so we definitely have to see what's happening with the triggers. And it could be, again, lots of things. I gave some examples about it, you know, being too easy, too long, too hard, all of those things. It could be a difficult transition. It could be going from something that's preferred, like my favorite video game, to yeah. having to get off to eat, which is something I can't stand, yeah. um, or to do work, you know, which is something that's hard for me. Um, so going too long without attention, that's something we don't think about a lot that is important. Um, sometimes it's unwanted attention because that might be difficult. Um, being told to stop, you know, being told no, being told to wait, that can be really hard. And also, you know, being stuck on a certain plan, this is something that I see very often with my patients is they have a very clear idea of what they feel like needs to happen. And when that doesn't happen, meltdowns occur because of flexibility differences and very clear ideas it's hard to work through those things. Totally possible, but that's where I come in. Um, but oftentimes there is a very stuck plan and it's very frustrating and very overwhelming and very stressful when you feel like your plan isn't going to turn out the way you want or maybe your plan doesn't work with other people's plans. So that can definitely be difficult. So mm -hmm. when you think about how we stack these stressors, no wonder the target behavior can occur. So for instance, you have these neurological differences and people don't understand them. So for instance, maybe you need more movement because you're understimulated and you've been sitting in class. Okay, so you're moving around because your body needs more movement and then you're told to sit. <laughs> and then you're told to do a writing assignment and you have a written expression disorder because you're more likely to have a learning disability. And you also have five motor differences, which makes writing really hard. So then you're not writing. And then you're told to write. So you can see how a target behavior could definitely come out of a feeling of hopelessness, a feeling of overwhelm, a feeling that this is never going to get done, I'm going to get in trouble, and it just gets to be too much. That's such a great example, too, of things kind of compiling all of these differences. It may not just be one piece of the date or the setting or the person. It can be all, of, all three and more. All three and more. And then, you know, maybe that child, because there are lots of sleeping differences with this population and, you know, maybe they're tired and then they had too many instructions and then they were teased by a peer. And then it was just, it was too much. You know, you're, you're trying to keep it together all day long. And that's what oftentimes my patients tell me. It's like, I keep it together all too long. And then it's just, it was too much. Right. Um, and then it looks like it came out of nowhere. Mm -hmm especially if you maybe are struggling with communicating what you need. Um, you know, something else to consider, again, it, we talked about the things that happened prior to the target behavior that we were thinking about helping the child with, but also what happens after. And that has 
a big impact on behavior as well. And that could be, you know, if a child is corrected or reprimanded, sometimes challenging behavior can even come out of that. So perhaps something happened and they were corrected and then a meltdown happened after that. Because a lot of children tell me that they feel like they can't do anything right. So they're corrected yet again. And that brings up feelings of defensiveness and anxiety. It's really, really hard for them. Um, maybe peers laughed at them. I know that's happened to my son before. Um, maybe they were ignored. You know, maybe they were told to wait and they feel like they couldn't. Or maybe they didn't know how long they were going to wait. Maybe it was forever, <laughs> right? Because never, ever, and always can feel very hard. Yes. Um, and so then we talk about, of course, avoiding and, and delaying difficult things. I don't know about you, Tara, but I do do that sometimes when I'm like, ah, oh, you know, I don't really want to do that. So I'm going to try to delay it. As much as I can. As, as much, much as I can. Yeah. And, and oftentimes kids do it, but we expect them not to. Like somehow <laughs> so it's not okay. Yes. It's not okay if they do, right? Um, so, you know, maybe they get something. Maybe it's a very efficient and effective behavior. I know yelling is extremely effective. You know, it's low effort. And, you know, sometimes people just want a child to stop. Like, okay, just do yeah. that. <laughs> just, just stop. Um, and, you know, some children um, need to be alone and they don't quite know how to ask. Um, and that's a way, go to your room you know, actually mm -hmm. worked out for them because that's what they wanted what they um, and or got some internal stimulation. So again, there's there's so many different reasons, but we have to be open to understanding and really, you know, this idea that behavior on the outside may look like oppositional behavior, they're being non-compliant, they're refusing. It's really so much more, so much more. So oftentimes, um, I hear that children will say things feel impossible, right? And if things feel impossible, you're, you're more likely to have a meltdown. I know I do. Um, so if we tell a student, do this worksheet, for instance, and it feels impossible, it's anxiety provoking, it's scary, you know, I don't know what to expect, this is going to take forever, I can't do this, what are we going to do? We don't think it's a big deal. We don't think the worksheet's a big deal, but they do. Mm -hmm. So we expect them to have no problem doing it. Mm -hmm. And when they don't do it, they're told that they're you know, not doing it. You need to do this. You're doing this wrong. Um, and I know, like, I'm a big fan of teachers, so I'm, I'm not at all doing that. But it's hard to figure out this on purpose, not on purpose type thing and what that mm -hmm. looks like. But really, I'm gonna set that aside because it's about collecting the information versus trying to feel, feel it out and see if it's on purpose or not. Because if it was, if a child is able to do well, they will, period. Mm -hmm. So we have to see kind of how we can help them get to the point where it works for them, whether that's us changing how we're doing things um, and then somehow kind of meeting in the middle a little bit or meeting more on their side and seeing what they need. Because we can't, if, there's, if there is a gap there, we're not going to get the behavior that we expect because it's not going to work. Mm -hmm. So we have to change our way of doing things and being open to do that, really. So we have to make what feels impossible, possible. 
So that's something that if, I, if anybody takes anything away from this talk today is if our expectation is not in line with the child where they are in that moment, we're often going to see challenging behavior, which means that we need to be curious about what we need to change to make it match for what they need. Does that make sense? Definitely. Absolutely. Very Wonderful. Good. Um, so I'm just going to give a quick example about school. Oh, great. Great. So for instance, um, the, the target behavior is running from class. And this little guy is running from 11 o'clock in the morning. Um, we do our little curiosity check and we see that, you know, it's a loud environment. He's been sitting for a while. He's an anxious little guy. He's also pretty hungry. It's before lunch. Mm -hmm. And we asked him to do an activity, which was writing. And he's got some fine motor differences, got a learning expression disorder, and it's too long and too hard. And nobody was paying attention because the teacher has got a thousand jobs to do, right? <laughs> so um, he or she was off helping someone else because they can't clone themselves. So this child ran from class, threw a pencil. The teacher was, of course, frustrated and yelled, come back. And, you know, the child was told to improve their behavior. They got to do something that was more preferred for them. They got to escape and delay writing, right? So we have to figure out what does all this stuff mean and how do we figure out how to move forward to best support them? So we understand that there was a delay in writing, also escape from a loud class. So we're gonna wanna get an occupational therapy evaluation. We're gonna modify the work that we're um, providing, also modifying the environment as much as possible. Also, we saw that this child got attention from the teacher. So we're going to go ahead and put um, more attention in for that child when they are doing really well um, and also put in more of a system where they feel more supported, whether that's more rewards, more breaks, all those things that work best for them. Um, so again, we can say it was on purpose, it was his fault, but that really doesn't serve them. Right. Yeah. So you know, whether there are, um, whatever the variables supporting challenging behavior, again, once you get curious, can make all of the difference in the world. And there are different strategies you can consider, like more specific instructions. Um, that's something that comes up often when parents come to see me, is they don't, you know, this, my child isn't listening. You know, they're not listening, they never listen to me. And um, what I usually find is that, the, in, the instructions can be more effective. Mm -hmm. So, you know, telling what to do instead of what to not do. Um, giving one instruction at a time, being really specific. Um, one time there was a parent that was really frustrated with their child when they told them to put their shoes upstairs. Um, so the parent had in mind that their child would put their shoes upstairs in their closet well, the child put the shoes at the top of the steps. So I said, well, actually they did what you asked, <laughs> right? They did. We, they did, so let's celebrate that. Yeah. Um, so just another reason why we have to be really specific. Mm -hmm. If I tell my son to do something, I tell him, please pick up the and put it here. And it may seem like that will take a long time, but it's definitely less time that it would be to argue over it 
yeah. or complain about it. Um, and it definitely helps him feel better because it gives me the opportunity to praise him. Like, thanks so much for doing that really quickly. I really appreciate it. Instead of, you didn't do what I said. I'm tired mm -hmm. of reminding you. So you can see how that would be a very different interaction. Definitely. It's such a great example, too, of just a very quick strategy to think about just in terms of everyday needs and conversations because you listed also some wonderful and really effective strategies at the school level too but parents may feel overwhelmed of just knowing where to start with a strategy definitely and tara i really messed up the other day because i am all about being real with the people that i serve <laughs> I messed up the other day and i'll tell you what i did okay my soon-to-be 16 year old i said please put your shoes by the cabinet and then, and before oh. he got to even pick up the shoes, he yelled, mom, you're telling me too many things at once. And I thought, oh my goodness, I just did. And I told, and I thanked him for telling me. And I said, you know, you're right. I did tell you too many things at once. I'm sure that was really confusing. Um, so you can see how he helped me understand what he needed and mm -hmm. he yelled, he raised his voice, but instead of me yelling back, I was open and curious as to what he was telling me and knew that he needed something different. So I needed to adjust my behavior. So I appreciate you sharing that. Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, I am not perfect for sure. Everybody. <laughs> um, and, and this is just a learning process for all of us because- yes. I messed up. I accepted what I did and I appreciate him bringing that to my awareness. Um, and you mentioned school and increasing academic success. And there's so many different things you can reduce amount of work. And that does not mean that it's easier or unfair for differently wired children. It means that it's more fair. Um, you don't need to do 20 problems to get it. Maybe you only need to do 10 to get it. Um, you know, providing choice of work. What do you want to do first? Um, let the students sequence it, you know, adjust the work to, you know, 80-20, show less work at a time. Um, there's, there's so many beautiful, simple strategies that you can use to help set up a child for success. You can model and prompt versus test them. Um, you can take a break and try again. There's, mm -hmm. there's so many things. I often hear children tell me that, I don't even want to try because I'm afraid I'm going to mess up or I'm going to mess up anyway. So why would I bother? And that's a really hard place to come out of. Definitely. And that often does get carried on into adulthood. And we hear it a lot from members of our autism grown-up community still very frequently. Definitely. And again, I, I spoke to depression being more likely in this population. And we have to say, of course, of course it would be. I mean, if you're told that you do everything wrong most of the time, how could you not be depressed? Um, and so really, this is a way to, to change that when you feel like you're getting corrected all the time. Um, you know, my son told me when he was having a hard time, he just feels like he does everything wrong. And I'm like, whoa, we need to back it up. You know, this, oh, yeah. is, this is not how I want my child to feel. Mm -hmm. um, and so then I knew that I had to adjust my approach even more than I had originally thought. And again, thanking him and hearing what he's saying instead of brushing it off. Yeah. Because it is important. Um, you know, 
sometimes with correction, it can be difficult. And again, you're correcting a person yet again, but what if the answer wasn't right or wrong? You were just having them do it. Maybe that's where you start, that you don't correct, right? And then you see where they need help in different areas and you teach in those areas. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's not about correcting in that moment. And then maybe it's about accepting correction. Maybe it's about modeling making mistakes. I do that in front of my children all the time. Yep, mom made a mistake. This is what I'm learning from it. <laughs> and I, I just say it that. out loud. That's awesome. Incredible. Yeah, so, you know, really, it, it can be a beautiful thing. These small, little tiny tweaks can make massive differences um, for our children and our students. And again, when I've been speaking to this is listening. We have to listen. If someone is struggling and they're telling you it's hard, listen. If they can't tell you it's hard, still listen to the behavior that they're having. Mm -hmm. You know, really, this is the most important thing because, again, what they're experiencing, it matters. And we don't want them to go through their life thinking it doesn't. Absolutely. And I think that even goes back to one of our biggest uh interest areas and something I talked about on your podcast was self-advocacy. We think that our children and students have these self-advocacy skills that they actually really don't have at the moment because they're just not supported for whatever reason over time. So we're thinking, oh, they'll tell me if they need this or if they need help or want help, but actually they may not know that they can actually do that. It's true. And so, you know, sometimes even with a child that has a lot of words, for instance, there's that assumption yes. that they're going to tell you, but that's not true. And there have been many times where people have told me, patients have come to see me and said, but I've told them before that it was hard and they ignored me. Or I told them before and nothing, none of the work changed. And so you can see, even if you they've tried it before, why would they continue if they felt like it doesn't work and it doesn't matter and no one's listening? Um, so like you said, any kind of that self-advocacy, just praise that, listen to that. It's important, it matters. And it's not just about here's this challenging behavior that we want another person to stop. It really is so much more than that. And if you think it's just that, things will not get better. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But the good news is it can be. Absolutely. The <laughs> impossible is, it's totally possible. It's totally can... <laughs> possible. Exactly. Yeah. My gosh, Holly, this was so wonderful to have you on here talking about this and taking a little bit of a deep dive with us in this episode uh, all about challenging behavior and actually that it's a conversation and considering the three C's along the way. So I, you shared a lot of value with us today and just thank you again. Yes, thank you so much for having me. It is absolutely one of most my most favorite things to talk about, for sure. I can tell. <laughs> I loved it. I love talking with you about it. <laughs> we'll have, we'll, uh, we will definitely have to talk to you soon then. Great. And so if anyone's interested in learning more about the services that I provide, please go on over to hollyblancmoses.com. And that's H-O-L-L-Y-B-L-A-N-C-M-O-S. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. We'll make sure to put her website in the show notes. And then are there any other places that people can follow along with you, Holly? 
definitely. I have um, a large Facebook group of the most supportive and loving um, parents out there. And it's called the Wire Differently Facebook group for parents. And I also have a group for professionals, for therapists and for speech therapists, mental health therapists, teachers, um, other types of educators at Wire Differently uh, for professionals. Wonderful. Uh, we will definitely make sure to put those in there too. Everyone should join those groups. They're really wonderful too. Wonderful people in there too to chat with. Thanks Great. for having me, Tara. Yeah, thanks, Holly. <laughs> Thank you again to Holly for joining us for today's episode. You can check out everything that we talked about in our show notes on the Autism Grown Up website, also linked in the description of the episode of wherever you are listening today. And this leads me to a quick ask. So if you found value in this episode and know that others would really also benefit from listening to this podcast, please leave us a rating and review. This really truly helps others in the autism community be able to find us easier online. You can also take a screenshot of you listening to the podcast on your phone or whatever device and tag us at Autism Grown Up. That's pretty much our tag everywhere. And that also helps get the word out about the show in a big way. So thank you ahead of time for doing that. And thank you so much again for listening to another episode of the AGU podcast. I'm looking forward to our episode next week, and I'll chat with y'all soon. This episode was brought to you by our supporters. We are a nonprofit, and we would love you to become a supporter yourself of future episodes like this one. Like I mentioned, this is just one of the many resources we offer in our resource center, and we're working towards a fundraising goal on expanding our resource center, and we need your help. Go to autismgrownup.com support dash agu to learn more and help us keep the show and our resource center running.